In the classic Western film, The Three Amigos, there's a discussion on knowing what a plethora is. So I spent one hour and 44 minutes in research, which coincidentally is the same length of the classic film. But I determined that today we have a plethora of topics in store for you. Meteorologist Don Day will not only be in to talk long-term weather, but we'll have an extended conversation on sea surface temperatures. Also, we'll hear about how Merck Animal Health's buyout of Allflex is impacting ranchers. And we'll have our guest from last week, Dr. John Hutchison, on to answer some follow-up questions regarding factors affecting calf prices. It's a plethora of topics on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Welcome to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Thanks for joining us. This is episode 117, and we're glad to have you along for the ride today. As I, I believe, as I said in the opening, we do have a lot of topics that I think uh, the changeup is going to be maybe a little different than we typically do. I know a lot of times I usually have one guest on for the entire show, but today a couple things led to this. First of all, I had some really some great feedback from different folks regarding our show last week, and it was with Dr. John Hutchinson as we talked about about animal programs and factors affecting calf prices. A really good show. I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But I had some other, some questions that kind of come up in that. So I gave him a call. I said, hey, uh, John, would you be willing to just jump on quick for a segment to, to answer some additional questions on that? And he said he would. So he will be joining us today and look forward to that conversation. Also, as I said in the opening, meteorologist Don Day joining us as he does every week. But this time we're going to go a little bit deeper on a subject regarding water temperatures. And this kind of stems from a question that the captain, Tim O'Byrne, had asked me and wanted to know if Don could answer that. And so that's kind of where that's stemming from there. We're going to have that dialogue with with meteorologist Don Day on that. And then, of course, the very end of our program today, he will give us a look at our long-term weather. Paul Kaufman will also be joining us. He is the executive director of Livestock Technology Solutions for Merck Animal Health. And uh, a few years ago, of course, we know Merck Animal Health purchased Allflex. Well, what does that mean to us as ranchers? We're going to have visit with him a little bit about that and the elements in regarding animal ID and everything. And it's definitely something that really a lot of us use. So uh, I'm looking forward to that conversation with Paul Kaufman on that. Now, if you've listened to my show at some point in time, you know that that I, I do like to see and like to foster the mindset of all of us being better stockmen. And and so with that in mind, I got a note here from a guest that we'd had a, a couple of weeks or a month ago, Dave Voth, who was on when we were talking about the Good Grazing Makes Sense program. And he passed along a note here of a stockmanship school coming on June 1st through the 4th featuring Don Hanato. And it will be at the Cottonwood Guest Ranch, which is in the O'Neill Basin there in Wells, Nevada. And and that's sponsored by the Western Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. It's going to be about 50% of it hands-on where you're going to be out doing this and 50% in the classroom. Uh, I know a neighbor of mine went to that stockmanship school. And so it's something you might want to consider. Topics that are going to be covering is stockmanship, conventional versus low stress, economic benefits of stockmanship, fundamentals, mindset, attitude, just a lot of good things. And like I said before, 50% of it, you're going to be doing it. 
and then the other part of it, you're going to be in the classroom. Again, the instructor is Don Hanato. If you want more information on that, I'm going to put a link in the description on this podcast site so you can uh, get more information on that, or you can call the Cottonwood Guest Ranch as well, 775-472-0222 to get more information on that. Well, a quick thank you to our sponsors today of the Working Ranch Radio Show, the American Simmental Association. And you know what? Heterosis works, which is why with Simmental, it's more per head, period. Find out more at Simmental.org. And Allflex, cattle identification and record keeping should be easy. And you can now tie your visual tag, your EID tag, and the genetic data to one management number with Allflex match sets. Find out more at AllflexUSA.com. And speaking of genetic data. Another sponsor today, Inherent Select from Zoetis, as they're providing commercial cow-calf producers with genetic insights to make replacement female selection and breeding decisions. Find out more at InherentProgress.com. And finally, MLS tubs. Don't gamble with fly control this summer. MLS tubs are a sure bet. All kinds of tubs for all kinds of needs. Learn more about MLS tubs at MLSTubs.com. Well, it's time now to check in with the captain Tim O'Byrne. He is publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody out there in Working Ranch Radio Land. This story today comes from uh, Montana Stock Growers Association Facebook page. Glasgow, Montana showed up this week and raised $20,100 for a BLM litigation fund. Held the Glasgow Stockyards, this was the largest donation yet in MSGA's series rollover auctions at markets across Montana to raise funds for its appeal of the Bureau of Land Management's decision regarding American Prairie's grazing allotments. Now, uh, Justin, fill everybody in on American Prairie and what they're up to. All right. Thanks, Captain. And I'll add just a few comments here on the American Prairie Reserve in just a moment to explain what what they are, if you're not familiar. But in regards to what the captain was referring to with the Montana stock growers raising money for litigation on the BLM, this goes back. And in fact, I would point you back to a show that I did back in August of last year. It was episode 81 entitled, Is the BLM Out of Bounds on This One? And it was a discussion that I had with Jay Bodner, who was then at that time the executive vice president for the Montana Stock Growers Association and Caitlin Glover, Executive Director of the Public Lands Council, talking about what had happened. Uh, The Bureau of Land Management had issued a final decision for changing six grazing allotments in Montana from cattle to bison. But the real issue was, is why did the environmental assessment conducted in that instance fail to analyze the full range of impacts from the proposal that was put forth by the American Prairie Reserve? Now, if you're not familiar with who they are, well, they are on a mission to accumulate and and control as much land as they can uh, and create one of the largest nature reserves. In fact, at this point in time, uh, from my understanding, uh, they have accumulated over 124,000 acres on private land and also control about 336,000, nearly 337,000 acres on leased public land by federal and state. The issue is, is they border a lot of ranchers in that and their plan is to 
put bison on that land. And so just a lot of concerns there. And again, I would point you back to the show that I did on episode 81 if you really want to know the full details of what's going on in there and why the Montana Stock Growers Association is raising money on their litigation against the BLM. Well, stay with us. Coming up after the break, we're going to find out a little bit more. A few years ago, Merck Animal Health purchased all flex. What does that mean to us as ranchers here in the industry that use those products? We'll find out more when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Every year you pick your replacement heifers. Some become profitable cows, others disappoint. How can you make more reliable selections? Genetic testing. Commercial cow-calf producers like you are using Inherit Select from Zoetis. You gain valuable predictions, including cow fertility, size and soundness, feed efficiency, growth and carcass merit, as well as easy-to-use economic indexes. This improves your selection, breeding, and marketing decisions. Request a call from InheritProgress.com and ask about free TSUs to get you started. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. Justin Mills with you. Uh, just another reminder here because, uh, and I'm, I mainly offer this out here because we've had some really great shows in the last several months that would, if you've missed anything or if this is your first time listening to our program and you want to go back and listen to some older shows, you can find us on pretty much any podcast provider out there. In addition, you can go directly to our site at workingranchradio.com and you can listen to those shows and I encourage you to do that. Also, leave a comment as well if you hear something you like or if you have a question reach out let me know justin.workingranch at gmail.com is how you can get a hold of me well joining us now here on the working ranch radio show is paul kaufman he's the executive director of livestock technology solutions for merck animal health and paul thanks for joining us here today on the working ranch radio show Justin, thank you, and great to be with you and your listeners today. You bet. We're going to talk a little bit today about uh, a few years ago, and you're going to give us a little bit more details on that, Allflex, which was purchased by Merck Animal Health. And, of course, a lot of us in the ranching industry, we're very familiar with Allflex and some of the products that's been going on. A lot of exciting new things coming down the line that we can, uh, that I, I know in, at some point we're going to be able to talk about as well here on the show. But let's go back to when that buyout took place and kind of everything that went on around that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you and I were talking before, you know, coming from a cow-calf background myself, I certainly had used all flex tags and mm-hmm. products for many years, you know, more than 65 years in the market. In 2019, Merck Animal Health acquired that business, acquired the all flex business as part of an acquisition of a, of a broader company that all flex was part of with those brands. We got into the identification business that you and I will speak a little bit about dairy monitoring as well as some stuff in the pet and the aquaculture side. Mm -hmm. Since that time, we've been bringing together these two great brands, these two great portfolios of products with with all flex tags as that baseline. You know, we like to say it all starts with a tag. Yeah. But then bringing those things together as we think about overall health and we think about what we can bring with our great Merck products as well to to your ranchers and their and their veterinary partners. Mm-hmm. Paul, when we look at this buyout by Merck Animal Health of Allflex, it really does bring together two entities from a name standpoint that a lot of us in the ranching industry have heard for quite some time. When we look at the service, though, and the depth of service, sometimes we don't really see the full layers or full depth of things that are that they are responsible for bringing into our industry. For example, you know, when we when we look at Allflex for, for right away, a lot of us think, well, it's ear tags and pretty good vaccine guns, but it's more than that. 
It certainly is. And those are two of the great basics of what we have, right? We like to say, as I said, it all starts with a tag. If we're going to do anything with that animal, be it that cow, be it that calf, we're going to have to be able to identify them. So we go everywhere from that basic of that tag, uh, one, two, three, four, five, Mm -hmm. up to custom identification where we can make that customized with your brand, electronic identification, laying that in as another layer and having that information tied back, that, that RFID tag number tied back on that tag. We'll take it a step further and we'll overlay that with tissue sampling. Mm -hmm. So as you're going to your genomics lab, having that information pulled together, putting that in a form where with those electronic tags, our reader technology, be that a a handheld reader, which can help get that information collected for you, easier collection, easier record keeping. And then going a step further as we look at all these, as you said, layers, but adding this further technology to it, thinking about how we create systems to help share that information. You know, all the opportunities that are coming in with people wanting to know more about where their food's produced, what those opportunities are. We're basic in, in being able to provide that that information and that technology to make that happen. Mm -hmm. About a month or so ago, it's been, I believe we uh, DNA tested a bunch of our heifer calves and we did use uh, those tags. You're talking about, uh, you know, the EID tag, uh, the the number tag in there, and it all came with the tissue sampler. For me as a rancher, one of the things I've really been exploring is how do we best utilize those EID tags? You talked a little bit about the reader technology in there, and that's really something that's to me, from a management standpoint, that's something that's really fascinating. I think there's a lot of ability, uh, potential for us as ranchers in utilizing that ability to track those animals with that EID from a management standpoint. I, I think there's great opportunities, you know, just at the local level at the ranch, if we think about it, just simplifying processes. So taking from a manual, writing everything down to be able to have that in elect- electronic record keeping for you on a day-to-day basis would be step number one. As you make those genetic improvements, as you take that information from the lab that you sent that to, have that tied back to that heifer calf, and then you think about what you're going to do with that information automates that for you, right? Makes it much, much easier. But I would challenge us to think a step further. And, and we think about as that information with that RFID tag in that animal, if we can get that to stay in the animal all the way from birth through harvest, mm-hmm. think about what that allows. You getting information possibly back from that feed yard of what's going on and how those cattle are fed, which you can learn more to make genetic progression mm-hmm. as it comes back from the packing plant and all that information that we've got the potential, if, if the producers and yeah. the owner of that data agree, to think about that story and that message that goes around and along with that steak that's sitting in the grocery store or sitting on our plate at a restaurant. Yeah. And that kind of leads us into my next question here. And you talked a little bit about the potential that's there. Where are we at when you, when you see the future of animal identification? What does that look like? Well, I I think it's a a number of things, you know, first of all, it's that ability to share information as, as makes sense within their operations, whether that's locally, whether that's with the people you're selling to or the people that you bought from so they can make improvements and and the infrastructure is being built. In some cases it's already there. You know, some of our, our great programs that are out there for people that sell cattle on programs, we're helping supply those tags and we've got great partners and, in, and companies out there that are using that information for, for verification purposes and helping on those programs. Think as we continue to go, that need for information and that, that desire to know more mm-hmm. is going to be there. And then as we think about that, how that helps us overall, 
grow this industry, have a better product, but more so even prove those great things we've been doing as an industry for years and years, right? To have that awesome story that goes around with this wonderful beef protein that y'all produce every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from an economic side of things for the rancher, what's the economic benefit that you're seeing in this? I mean, you touched on it a little bit with, you know, that ability to make some management decisions, but let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. And that's going to vary ranch by ranch, right? I mean, it's going to depend on, on what they're doing. If they're selling on a program, you're, you're talking really uh, a, a, a pretty low investment overall, Justin, as you're mm-hmm. thinking about it, and you would know from what, what you bought with your, your, mm-hmm. your local tags there that you got. Um, but from that economics, it's going to depend on how you're going to apply it. You're going to have a return of, of a certain amount if I'm using it locally. The more you're able to collect that information and use it and think about value-added systems and chains and different things we can go into, the more that value is going to go up. My, my feeling personally is longer term mm-hmm. as we get into this and start thinking about it, an entire birth to harvest, if you will, type environment you know, that tag, that information is going to be an integral part of how we have that information follow along, uh, how that information gets from point A to point B, maybe compared to your social security number and mine. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the one constant that we have, yeah, right? Yeah, we yeah. think about that. So economically, lots of stuff going on to to continue to prove that and and really just kind of hitting the cusp of that in, in some of these areas with different programs and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And I think really when we look at animal identification, the other conversation that kind of comes into that at the same time is some, and, and you've talked about a little bit as well, some traceability and the fact that we can, we can track this through and there's a lot of conversation without getting real political as neither one of us probably right. want to do on this particular right. issue. But at the same time, I I look at it, the, the thing that I've looked at it, not trying to get caught up in the political side of some of this kind of issues, but really from a management standpoint, there's some elements here that really are very beneficial to us as ranchers, purely, purely from a management standpoint. Absolutely. And and I'm with you. I'm certainly not, to, not, not looking to get into the, <laughs> the political piece of it. Just to say the opportunities are there if, if we as cattle producers choose to use those, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think that's a key point is it's a choice. It's a decision that each one of the owners need to make in that. I think from a management standpoint, just being able to streamline your record keeping, you know, moving away from po- probably spreadsheets with typing stuff in at night or, or, you know, how we get all these health records and we think, what is that genetic progression we've made? What's gone on with this animal here? That's just from a local management standpoint, I think some wonderful opportunities, you know, good software systems that are out there too. So yeah. there are certainly right there, Justin, to me, that's, that's the yeah. ground basis of it. And then we expand it from there based on decisions that people want to make. You bet. Well, Paul, I thank you for joining us before we head out. I guess just some final comments as you look at this, this merger between two very landmark entities that's been part of our cattle industry for a long, long time. The future for this merger brings a lot of benefit to us as ranchers. Is that what you're feeling? Well, it's certainly what I'm feeling. And I, the other thing I'd, I'd be really wrong if I just didn't mention is just from an investment standpoint, Point, what we've done over the last four years, you know, to, to be able to have more capacity. Certainly all of us face some challenges during COVID as related to labor yeah. and supply chains and everything else. We as Merck have uh, certainly put a significant amount of money into expanding our capacity to making sure we can have the right tags in the hands of y'all at the right time. We've added another plant to the system and I'm happy to say our production is back up to where we were and better than where we were pre-COVID. So really, really just proud of where we are. I think there's great opportunities and uh, appreciate the chance to visit with you and your listeners a little bit today. You bet, Paul. Well, I appreciate you joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. 
Thank you very much. And again, that was Paul Kaufman. He is the executive director of Livestock Technology Solutions for Merck Animal Health, explaining a little bit about uh, the coming together of these two companies with Merck Animal Health purchasing uh, Allflex a few years ago and the future and what it's going to be looking like as they bring together these two entities uh, in animal identification. Really exciting to see some of this stuff and the technology and how it can be used for us as ranchers. By the way, if you want to find out more, you can go to allflexusa.com and you can get more information there as well. We'll stay with us coming up after the break. We'll get into our featured interview for this week on the Working Ranch Radio Show. You know, big cows come with big feed bills, which is why smart genetic selection can pay off in your cow herd. Did you know Simmental-influenced cows are an average 74 pounds lighter at maturity than Angus-sired counterparts, according to a recent U.S. Meat Animal Research Center study? Now, while Simmental is sized for more efficient gains, 20-year genetic trend lines also show the breed offers reliable calving ease, early growth, and cow longevity. That's a balanced herd built for profit. Sim Genetics, giving you more per head, period. Stand strong. Simmental. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Uh, joining us now is our guest from last week, Dr. John Hutchison. He's the Director of Beef Cattle Technical Services with Merck Animal Health. And our program last week was on programs and uh, and uh, factors affecting our calf prices. A great program. I would encourage you go, to go back and listen to it because there's a lot of information that we touched on there that if you hear today's, it's a kind of a, a supplement to what today to what we talked about last week. And and uh, John, first of all, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, when we had last week, we talked to several different factors, uh, very basic factors that do affect calf prices. In in regards to our show last week, I did have some questions come up, and I wanted to visit with you about them. First of all, the one question I had from a neighbor of mine was wanting to know we talked about the different programs and and things that you could do for example there was value if you were bqa certified and then we talked about uh if calves were nhtc or or other programs and i'm not going to just say nhtc is the ticket i'm just saying if they were other programs there were some there was some value getting back to those the question was do those added items do they stack or is it just kind of lumped together or or do they add on to each other hey thanks justin for having me back on i appreciate that and and so, yes, yeah, so maybe we ground ourselves a little bit in that answer. And so when we talked last week about each individual factor, so like you said, whether it was polled calves or BQA certified, the way we approach the database is exactly that, that they, they are to be interpreted relative to whatever we were comparing them to, whether they were non-polled or polled calves or whether they were BQA certified or not. And then we held everything else constant. So we held, you know, weight, size, gender, region, just all these other factors we held constant so that we could tease out exactly singly what those factors contributed to price increase or in some cases price decrease. And so absolutely, if you're interpreting two or more traits simultaneously, you need to use an additive approach. And what does that mean? That means if you've got steer calves that are worth $19 a hundred and you've got progressive genetics worth about a buck 55 a hundred and you're comparing it to heifers without progressive genetics, it's a $20 and 80 cent per hundred weight premium. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
What about so um, what absolutely about, use an additive approach? Yeah. So even what about like even the programs? If we is, is that same like if I do BQA and I um, GAP yeah, certify or NHT and and VAC forty five, we could just stack those those additives into there. Absolutely. If you're BQA certified, it's a dollar forty a hundred um, positive, and if you've got VAC forty five um, calves that you're um, you're raising it's close to $9. And so that's a $10 premium. A VAC 45 BQA certified calf is going to bring, you know, nine, ten, almost $10, mm-hmm. a hundred more than one that's not BQA certified and not VAC 45. Okay. Okay. Good. That's, that, that's clear. Good that makes question. <laughs> really good question. You bet. We, we should have, we should have done a better job of doing, covering that Justin last week. So Whoever asked that question, thank you. Okay. All right. Here's another one. And this this came up in regards to the implanted versus uh, non-implanted calves. And more specifically was we have non-implanted calves. And that's kind of our baseline in this study. And you said there was no change in price between a non-implanted calf and an implanted calf. The biggest difference would be maybe your weight gain that you could return in the, in the end of the thing. But when we ver- take that against like NHTC, which stands for non-hormone treated cattle. The difference there is NHTC has a $6 hundred weight premium. You know, why, why that versus these non-implanted calves not seeing that, that premium? Yeah, it's a yeah, good question. And so it, it's a marketing program. So, you know, NHTC, you have to know really early on in marketing your calf crop that you're, you're entering into that NHTC program. And so if you're in there, you know, you, you capture that, um, that, that there's no implants required. They're, they're banned, right? They're not required or not, they're not allowed in an NHTC program. And you get that $6 a hundred weight if you, um, and so the base is just a non NHTC calf and everything else is held constant. And so really what you should, way you should look at that is what is your current marketing program today? And if you're in an NHTC implants, you know, they don't have, you, you capture the $6 premium and go on. If you, if you're not at a mark, if you're in a marketing program that doesn't care, then, you know, you're losing 23 pounds of weight. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that 23 pounds of weight can equate to, if you do it on these prices and these weight of calves, that's a $7 and 41 cent premium on that weight. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if you, if you look at it that way. And so, so again, NHTC, I get where they're coming from. That NHTC is a marketing program that specifically doesn't allow implants. And so uh, we just looked at NHTC yes or NHTC no, and everything else was accounted for, if that makes sense, on yeah. that $6.00. Yeah. Well, and it really gets back to what we had talked about last week was really begin early on a marketing plan and and all of that involves in in understanding what are the costs to get in these programs because you could you can put a lot of costs in terms of time or paperwork or even have to change what you do on a normal basis labor wise so you really have to understand this cost when you're looking at these programs and i'm not trying to devalue these programs there's value in them but you need to understand that oh absolutely absolutely and there's you know there's there's yes there is value in them and so you just have to evaluate that and you know on the implant side of things if you're you know not in a marketing program that doesn't allow that a lot basically allows implanting you you know your decision is to implant is whether you know you realize that average daily gain or not it's 23 pounds of productivity if you want to 
move yourself from where you've been in an implanted world and you want to move into a marketing program like NHTC that's not, you not only do you have to account for the cost of that program, but you also have to account for now your productivity is going to go down. Mm -hmm. And so you need to understand that in the premium that you get for those NHTC cattle and being part of that program, those costs. And so you've got productivity to outweigh as along with your cost. Yeah. Okay. John, I want you to speculate just a little bit here and, and I'm not going to hold you to it here later on. I'm not going to call you up <laughs> next fall and say, Hey, you told me this with these prices higher as we're seeing in this marketplace, will we see that spread in the premiums that were that you saw in the, in the last couple of years of data? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So that, that that's interesting. I'm, I'm going to tell you a simple answer is yes. I, I believe you're going to see some spreads with these programs. And the reason why is purely my investment in these cattle. You know, it's it's like any of us. When we invest in something that costs a lot of money, you know, our, our appetite for risk management goes up. That's my belief mm-hmm. that, um, you know, you've got something valued at X dollars, and so you want to protect it. If it's, you know, half those dollars, I, I might be less, you know, not as much money at risk. So from a risk assessment of what these calves are going to cost, um, they're going to be extremely expensive. And if I'm sitting there buying those calves to move on down the beef cattle system, our production system, i.e. the feed yard, I, I want I want them on a VAC 45 program. I want the healthiest calves I can get. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's going to be a lot of competition for those because I'm putting a lot of risk on buying a $2.75 a pound calf or $3 a pound calf. So I, I do believe the, these premiums, we will see a spread going into um, next year's data set. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's interesting because I hadn't thought about it that way because I just figured – when this market's just going so high that there would just be this dire people just wanting calves. But that's a good point that at the price they are, you want to really protect that investment, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously that's my, that's my thought. I mean, you're right. There's, there is that under, under tow of of cattle supply and wanting to have cattle for programs and, and, Mm -hmm. and um, you know, to meet the demand of our public consuming public of beef. And so, um, I get that, but I, I'm. I, I, that's where my mind yeah. is, yeah. Justin. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, John, I appreciate you jumping back on for us and answering a few questions. I appreciate it. So it was always enjoyable because uh, you have a lot of information. You've seen a lot of things, and, and I appreciate your insight on all this. Yeah, thanks a bunch, Justin, for having me on. You bet. And again, that was Dr. John Hutchinson, Director of Beef Cattle Technical Services with Merck Animal Health, joining us here today to answer a few more questions following last week's show. A great program. And in fact, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it as we talked about animal programs and factors affecting calf prices. It comes out of two years worth of of sale results from Superior Livestock and a study put together by Kansas State University and Merck Animal Health on it. Very valuable information that I know a lot of us in, in ranching, we all have to market our cattle at some point. A lot of useful information you'll find in last week's show. We'll stay with us coming up next. Meteorologist Don Day steps in for an extended conversation as we'll not only get into our long-term weather outlook, but we'll also be talking some topics like sea surface temperatures and climate change. Tune in. We'll be back with more on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this. Don't gamble with fly control this summer. MLS tubs are a sure bet. 
MLS high-performance, low-moisture cooked molasses tubs provide controlled, consistent supplement delivery to your cattle, horses, sheep, and goats. MLS takes pride in their line of products that are proven to lower your feed supplement costs. All kinds of tubs for all kinds of needs. Learn more about MLS tubs at MLSTubs.com. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. Justin Mills here with you as we are joined now by meteorologist Don Day for a bonus segment. Today he is stepping in to, to answer a question. The captain a while back had sent a question to me and asked if Don could address this. And that was in regards to warm pockets of water that were floating through the ocean. And I don't know the full story or depth of the story that was out there. But a while back I'd mentioned this to Don and said, can, is this something that we can address here on the show? And he said, absolutely. So... Don, what do you know about that that information that has come up in regards to these warm pockets of water that we're seeing in the ocean, and, and where's that coming from, and what kind of effect is it having? Well, uh, unfortunately, we don't know a lot because um, trying to understand where we see these colder pockets and warmer pockets of waters forming the world's oceans namely especially the the atlantic and the pacific but all the major world's oceans is, is that we always have different areas of sea surface temperature there could be two three degrees celsius difference between some parts of oceans and you know what actually is the driving factor why are these areas warmer in other areas why are they colder and then when these warm and cold areas of water get caught up in the circulations that happen the currents across the world's oceans is it, it then becomes a very dynamic situation to where you're mixing colder and warmer it but what really is the driver and and the thing ever since we started to try to understand these these changes that go on in the oceans with la nina and el nino which was really not until the late 80s and early 90s is what is the real driver is it the sun is it clouds is it because the earth's a little bit warmer is that heating the oceans um and when we do all the math and we we do all the figuring and if you look at the calculations of the warmer water temperatures you get with an el nino in the pacific and the colder waters you'll get over in this part of the ocean if you do all the math Mm -hmm. what we find out is that it can't just be one thing it just can't be solar activity it just can't be that the earth is one degree celsius warmer there's some other things going on. And what has been proposed when we started to see these changes in these ocean temperatures is, is that, well, maybe there is a lot of volca- volcanic activity deep in the oceans that we have no idea about. That The best analogy, it's like a stovetop uh, to where you put a kettle of water to make a hot pot of tea. And you put that kettle, obviously, on the warm part of the stove or the burner, and perhaps in the oceans across the globe, especially in the deep oceans where we can't really go down there and see what's going on, maybe there's volcanic activity responsible for some of that. And lo and behold, here over the last month or so, due to some new satellite technology, there was a paper that came out that they get this. This is kind of mind boggling. And this is what one scientist said, mind boggling. <laughs> they discovered 19,000 volcanoes that were undiscovered in the world's oceans. And it's like, well, how could we miss 19,000 volcanoes? Well, the new satellite technology is, is so good right now. They're able to penetrate 
deep into the oceans and, and, and using that satellite technology to find things that's going on. But one reason why we might not know that there's 19,000 volcanoes we didn't know about is they're so deep mm-hmm. in the oceans, um, in the Atlantic and in the Pacific. But if you are, are putting a lot of heat energy from this volcanic activity, as well as the gases that come out of these volcanoes, um, you're likely going to have a big impact on ocean temperatures. And, and and this is where you get these potentially these blobs of these warmer and colder pockets of water. Mm-hmm. Don, I think it'd be good to put into perspective the vacillation that we see in sea surface temperatures because we hear, uh, for those of us that aren't scientists, it's very minute and we have people in our society making big narratives and big uh, stands on climate change based upon sea surface temperatures. And, and I don't, for, for myself, it's a little bit confusing because it, it seems so slight, yet at the same time, you know, some of these people are quite consumed by those changes. Changes. So put into perspective for us the vacillation that we see in sea surface temperatures over the years and how that correlates to what we're seeing now. Well, yeah, that, and you're going to hear this, I, I, I think, over the next year or so. And there's already been articles out there about the, the world's oceans are very warm, the warmest since the beginning of the satellite record. Um, the thing is, is that you, as I mentioned before, is that you cannot assign one variable and say that the Earth's oceans are are getting warmer because of just one thing, and that would be that that would be air temperature. It is true, and people will make reference to this, that the oceans are a reservoir of heat energy because, it, it, just like anything, if if you let's go back to the tea kettle analogy, mm-hmm. if you put a pot of cold water on the stove and you turn it on high, you heat up that water. And let's say you turn off the stove. Well, it's going to retain some of that heat. It's going to store that energy. It's also going to take some of that energy and turn that water into water vapor. So when the oceans are a little bit warmer, more water vapor goes into the air. And that indeed is part of the process when the earth goes through some warmer and cooler cycles all the way through. But the math doesn't add up Mm -hmm. to say that all of the warming that's occurring in the oceans is just due to one thing, and that would be uh, greenhouse gases. In fact, um, there's numerous studies that say greenhouse gases can only warm the top millimeter of the water of an ocean. Uh, thing about oceans you got to remember mm-hmm. is not only are currents moving horizontally um, across the oceans, you know, changing latitude, but they're changing latitude but they're also circulating vertically up and down. You have upwelling and downwelling. So as complicated as the atmosphere is, when we always try to think in three dimensions, that the air is moving not only horizontally, but up and down at the same time and at different angles, the oceans are doing the same thing. So in a way, the ocean interface with the atmosphere is you have two extremely dynamic environments that are interacting at all the same time the atmosphere and the oceans are coupled, meaning they are they're linked. Mm-hmm. So it can get extremely complicated to try to keep track of all these things. Um, and to whittle it down to just one simple explanation is is not the whole story. And 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 unfortunately, you know, that's been part of the problem yeah. of trying to understand how the oceans affect the world's climate is trying to make it too simple of a connection. Thankfully, studies like this, discovering these 19,000 volcanoes, I think is going to give more insight to serious researchers who are maybe looking at other things that are going to be impacting the world's ocean temperatures. Mm -hmm. Is at some point, is some of this stuff going to be balanced with the extreme 
narrative that has been going on in regard to climate change. And I mean, we hear it from the top down all the way from the White House, all the way down to people, you know, doing odd things to get attention. But when, when these, when we have these kind of studies, are we, are we advancing good science forward? Or are we just still continuing to see a lot of push of just the narrative of what people want to hear? Well, you know, it, it, a lot of this is politics and a lot of this is, um, politics yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in terms of thing is, but, but I, but I do see more and more research coming out that isn't, isn't trying to say, Oh, we shouldn't be worried about greenhouse gases or that carbon dioxide doesn't make the worth warmer, but, but it's too simple of an explanation. And I think yeah. there is a lot of science getting started. It's way behind, but there needs to be a lot more research like this, research that came out about volcanoes they weren't trying to disprove anything Mm -hmm. but what they they wanted to see what the satellite could find and lo and behold they found out that wow there's these volcanic processes on the ocean floor that are going to be directly impacting the water above that and if that's the that if that's the case well as i mentioned earlier the atmosphere and the oceans are coupled they they're they're working together Mm -hmm. so so um i mean honestly the amount of variables is between two and three dozen that we know of, that we're confident of, that affects the world's weather and the climate. And, and trying to understand this variable and getting a better understanding is going to make us in the future have a better understanding of not only understanding how the weather and the climate works, but also to forecast it better as well. Um, and, and I think somebody like myself that tries to keep track of everything is, is that when you hear these very simple explanations um, about what affects the weather and climate based on only one or two things, is it's disingenuous and I, it's it's terribly ignorant for people who uh, claim to be of of the uh, let's say scientifically literate in the world of weather and climate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Final question on this, and we'll take a break and come back with our our look at our long term weather, but. I guess when I hear this kind of stuff and when we when we get into the context of of climate change and that discussion that is very heated in today's in in today's world one of the things I think about and this is by no way going to advocate that we just go out and destroy our land or we destroy our 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 climate or our environment excuse me and, and we do those kinds of things but in your opinion how much do you think our environment is somewhat self-healing now again uh you cut my arm off my arm's going to be gone uh but at the same time if i if i take a knife and i you know i accidentally cut my arm it's going to heal back so how much in in that mindset when you look at our earth from that standpoint is that is that a fair comparison to say that it has some ability to be self-healing a better way to describe it is not so much self-healing, but that that the weather and climate and a lot of Earth systems are are cyclical. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell people this all the time when they're worried about because you'll hear about things that'll be said. We've hit a tipping point that that once we reach this tipping point, a a, a cascading set of events will set off climatic calamity. Mm-hmm. Um, when in reality, um, when you look at how climate and weather systems work is is you go through these these cyclical periods to where you know let's say you know let's let's use the california drought for the example okay okay the so we we knew that uh with the burgeoning la nina that there was likely going to be some drought conditions on, on the on the west coast 
which we certainly saw from night from 2020 through the the middle to later parts of 2022, a three year mm-hmm. drought. Now look what's happened in California. Uh, did somebody just magically do something to to make it all of a sudden rain and snow in California again? No, the weather went through this process that's not linear, not based on tipping points, but based on these cycles that it go on through. And what is very difficult in, in the world of climate forecasting and weather forecasting is understanding these cycles, their timing and their intensity, and understanding that cycles interact with other cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the thing is, is in a way it is self-healing because Mother Nature is – and I, you know, I say this all the time. The, the atmosphere is 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 extremely uh, effective and it's extremely efficient at balancing itself out. Our human perceptions of that, though, is is that we we tend to think of when we're in a bad period, whether it's a drought or we're in a situation where we're in a heat wave or a cold snap, that that you're kind of going to be in this predicament forever. Mm-hmm. And you, what you, you realize when you just start plotting the data is you get these sine waves, which is that yeah. you, you go through these periods and what will end up happening is the atmosphere will even things out at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're caught up in a certain event, you sometimes lose sight of that. And some of that's human nature. But if you look at the bigger picture, um, you, you tend to see that, yeah, the atmosphere is self-regulating and it will work its way. It's going to work its way out. And you are going to end droughts mm-hmm. and then you're going to start droughts and, and, and take whatever weather phenomenon you want to do, whether it's an increase in decrease in hurricanes an increase or decrease in tornadoes, you never see it steady state. You never see it the same every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you were talking about that, the thought that came to my head was that we as humans think linear when weather operates cyclical, but yet we want to force weather into a linear pattern and then justify our uh, beliefs. That, that is a great way to do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and we're taught linear. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're, we are, we're taught a lot of things that, that work out a linear fashion. I mean, if you get deep into the sciences, one of the first things they talk about is linear regression and we're going to do linear regressions. And we're going to do all of these things, but nature doesn't necessarily like to fit on our graphs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. we like that, that we like to build. Yep. yep. For sure. Well, uh, meteorologist Don Day joining us for an extended look at some information here today. Very good information, Don. Stay with us, folks. When we come back, he will join us again as we take a look at our long-term weather. We'll be back on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this. Do you have a young child, grandchild, niece, or nephew that loves the weather and wants to learn more? Day Weather has produced a children's weather journal full of weather facts, fun weather experiments, coloring pages, and pages to record weather observations for every season of the year. The weather journal is for ages 3 to 7 and designed to be fun and educational. The interactive weather projects are fun for the whole family to take part in. For only $10, the Day Weather Weather Journal is a great gift idea for any occasion. Click on our Amazon link to order at dayweather.com. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. As we turn now and take a look at our long-term weather today, brought to you by AllFlex. Cattle identification and record keeping should be easy. And now you can tie your visual tag, your EID tag, and the genetic data to one management number with the AllFlex match sets. If you want to find out more, go to their website at allflexusa.com. And continuing now with us is meteorologist Don Day, who joined us in the previous segment. We had a great discussion. 
just in general on some climate uh, change, sea surface uh, temperature issues. Uh, that was very good discussion. If you missed that, be sure to go back and listen to that as well. And Don, we've seen some decent moisture into those pretty dry areas of the Southern Plains. It's good to see that. And I thought it was interesting. Last week, I was looking at some of the maps that you had and showing water temperatures and water vapor where that's sitting at. Uh, it almost looked to me like a very monsoon type look as we would see more in the middle summer. So as we head into the middle of May, maybe third week of May here later on, what do you anticipate to see for us in in terms of the weather pattern across the U.S.? Well, it's pretty pretty interesting. You had mentioned kind of like a a monsoon or summer Mm -hmm. look in parts of the central and western United States, and that's really true. What has evolved is kind of a a reversal of fortune for some parts of the country. Uh, The East Coast and the Midwest had a very warm winter on whole. Um, while the western half of the United States, as we all know, was was a lot colder. But we've seen this high pressure ridge develop over the western high plains and Rockies, and it's kind of split the cold into two pieces. Uh, I mean, we had record snows over the past week in parts of the Great Lakes. It snowed in West Virginia. It snowed in Pennsylvania. Um, and the West Coast has been unseasonably cool and damp along the California coast, while this warm pocket has developed in the nation's midsection. And it's been a pattern that's been kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. Now, what is likely going to happen is, is that as this pattern slowly gets unstuck, uh, it does look like some of that West Coast weather will translate eastward, further east into the, the central United States, and will start to initiate better rain chances again. And, and this is is likely going to be getting into areas that need it that have started off may warm and dry um we're anticipating that areas of montana the dakotas wyoming and uh some areas of nebraska you know parts of nebraska are really dry yeah yeah. um colorado and kansas they're going to get back into it again um now it's it's going to be a a process that's going to get stretched out over the next week or two but it does look like um as may matures and thankfully we have 31 days in May, that there are going to be opportunities for dry areas to be picking up some rainfall. And I think some of it's going to be well-timed in some areas. Um, Now, there are some dry areas without a doubt, but May is the month Mm -hmm. and into early June where it only takes one or two storms and and that can really change things up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and it's been interesting, I think, for for folks that's been in that pattern where it's been a little bit dry here for this spring, starting to maybe raise a little concern. And you and I were talking about it before we went on air that, you know, I've been real dry here and and it's your we've had a little moisture left over, but we didn't have a lot of snowpack. So a little bit of concern and and hoping that we'll start to see that that later moisture coming. You had talked about um, that we're we're really seeing a pretty significant. I hate to keep going back to La Nina, El Nino, because you've you've talked a little bit about it here before, but that's pretty much on track. Uh, you've you've got some latest data. We are seeing that water change, and it's really looking like the fall of the years when we'll start to see that turn. That's right. And the thing to remember about an El Nino and when it's most productive with precipitation is going to be usually late winter and into spring. And since we officially and really did not get into this bigger change in sea surface temperatures until about five weeks ago, mm-hmm. we're going to go into the summer with a burgeoning line, El Nino, one that's beginning to form. But the real impacts that we tend to see historically are likely going to come a little bit longer when it gets a little bit stronger. So that's going to be as we get into where El Nino probably is going to have its biggest impacts will be right at the end of this year 
and into the late winter and spring of 2024. So I think that's where we're really going to see the impacts. With that said, with those cold uh, tropical waters gone now in the Pacific, the rest of this spring and into early summer should be more productive with precipitation in many areas of the United States as compared to the last two or three summers. Mm -hmm. But it may not be with the classic El Nino signature. Sure. All right. Well, Don, thanks for joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Thanks for having me. And again, that was meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather and appreciate him also stepping in and giving us a little bit more here today, some good discussion on sea surface temperatures and some of that dialogue that's out there that we're hearing in in, uh, some of the bigger news outlets out there. Uh, By the way, if you want to follow along with meteorologist Don Day, you can go to his website at dayweather.com and he kicks out a daily video podcast every Monday through Friday morning. Our weather today brought to you by Allflex cattle identification and record keeping should be easy and you can tie your visual tag and that eid tag and your now your genetic data to one management number with the all flexed match sets find out more at allflexusa.com we'll stay with us coming up after the break we'll put a wrap on this week's show when we come back on the working ranch radio show Just another reminder here that if you missed something here today and you want to go back and listen to it again, then you can go to our podcast site. It's workingranchradio.com or pretty much any podcast provider out there. But we've really had some great shows here lately, very applicable to us in the ranching industry. Of course, last week it was, as we heard earlier from our guest, Dr. John uh, Hutchinson, joining us here as we were talking about animal and program factors affecting calf prices. A very good show, very useful information in there. About a couple of weeks ago, we talked talked about a legal perspective on estate planning. Now, if estate planning isn't a subject that about everybody uh, in the ranching business doesn't have to deal with at some time or the other, that's a good show. A lot of very practical information in that. And look through the list of shows that we've had. I think you'll find some of that information in those shows very, very valuable. A quick thank you to our sponsors here today, the American Simmental Association, All Flex, Inherit Select from Zoetis, and MLS Tubs. The Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine, branded number one by America's Ranchers. If you'd like to get a hold of me, my email address is justin.workingranch at gmail.com. Be sure to join us at the same time, same place next week or on your favorite podcast provider. I'm your host, Justin Mills. And until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long. So long.